In the last two weeks, we've seen the end of the world, as we know it at least, depicted for us in the book of Revelation through the image of a scroll being unsealed and unscrolled until everything becomes clear. But just before the image is complete, the account is interrupted by two questions. Chapter 6, verse 17, who can stand? And chapter 7, verse 13, from where have they come? Who gets everlasting life and how? Chapter 7, verse 1, there's a lot of rich text, and uh, I recommend that you have it open in front of you. Revelation 7, 1, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. I want you to remember that number is symbolic in this book. Four, remember, is symbolic of the globe. And it is amplified by the images of all the corners and all the winds, like every point of the compass, every direction of the earth. And then that is amplified by reference to earth and sea and trees, which maybe reach into the sky. Four winds, four corners, earth, sea, sky, we're being told the entire world, as we know it, will end. But right now, for some reason, God is holding back on the end of the world. There is a reason. Verse 3. An angel says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until, there's one more thing to do, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. A king would get a wax seal and imprint it, maybe using his signet ring and and imbue it or emboss it with his own image. And his mark would authenticate that which had been sealed and identify it with himself. In the same way, God will not end this world until he has sealed everyone that he wants to seal and marked them out as his own. If you've suffered a failing and you've blown up your own world or a bereavement or a loss of some kind and your world has fallen apart, you might be pretty much done with this world and you might want God to end it all right now and you might cry out for the Lord to return. I think the people who cry out for the Lord's return the most fervently are those who have been most recently bereaved. But as you cry out and you speculate and you wonder why it is that God has not yet ended this naughty world as Cranmer called it. That slowness that frustrates you, don't forget. It's the same slowness that not so long ago gave you the time you needed to receive your seal. It might even be this slowness as we see it for God to return. Is the slowness you need because you are yet to receive your seal or your children, and their children, and their children. So ask the first question first. Who can stand? Who gets a seal? Who wins eternal life? Who are the goodies out there? Verse 4, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Again, number highly symbolic. Four is a number of globality. Uh, 12 is a number of completeness. 144 being a 12 times another 12 
tells us that this number of those sealed is not only complete, but completely complete. Thousand is also a symbol of completeness, and it's large. So God's work is not just completely complete, but completely, complete, completely, and bigly, if you can imagine such a thing. A lot of people get sealed. It's probably a lot more than you might think, more than you can count, an enormous number, with none of the right people missing out, and none of the wrong people sneaking in, a big, complete number. But not everyone is sealed. Not everyone makes it. Check out the list. 12,000 from the tribe, the tribe of Judah were sealed. Then Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Ishakar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Very strange list. There are 12 tribes of Israel, which of course there are. 12 is symbolic of completeness, so there are 12. There are 12 disciples. That's not a coincidence because the same God wrote the whole book. But uh, there are 12 names listed here, and there are 12 tribes. But Joseph is not a tribe, and he's on the list. If your Bible has a map at the back of it, like mine does, uh, it probably has a map of all the tribes of Israel, and uh, you will... Spend the rest of your life looking for Joseph on that map and not find him because he's not one of the tribes. Joseph had two sons. And these two sons formed two half-tribes on his behalf. There was the half-tribe of Manasseh that is listed here and the half-tribe of Ephraim who is missing. So is the whole tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan on the map, not on the list. And I do not know why. Uh, Welcome to another exciting episode of Pastor's Guess. Uh, I don't know. Um, Some scholars speculate Dan was especially wicked. Dan was known for its idolatry. Perhaps that's why Dan is missing. But Manasseh was not so especially good that he should have his half-tribe status upgraded to whole-tribe status, and then technically, with his dad being listed as well, find himself on the list twice don't make any sense. It's a very strange list. Certain tribes missing, certain tribes added or inflated. I think the list has been messed with on purpose to reveal something. Here's my best guess what it reveals. I think we're being told, although the number sealed will be completely, completely complete and way bigger than we could imagine and all the right people will be there and none of the wrong people not there. It's uh, none of the, not the wrong people there and uh, all the right people will be there. Not everyone's going to make it. Not everyone is going to make it. And even some of those people that seem to have the right credentials to us, from our perspective, in our eyes, are not going to make it. And they'll say, but we had believing parents. And... We went to church every single week, and we kept the law, and we knew the story, and we checked the box, and we got the baby done, and we did all the stuff. We did confirmation. There was a weird thing one Wednesday with oil and ash. I don't know what that was about. We we came in, and we went out, and we did all the right things, and we thought we were sealed, but they were not. Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Clearly, very good, very pure, very powerful, very useful people have not done enough to earn a seal for themselves. Romans 10.9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, 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 we got the first bit right, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all. That's all. Lord, Lord, did we not fail you sometimes and let you down? Lord, Lord, we, we loved you, but we cheated on you sometimes. Lord, Lord, we, we blew it. Lord, we failed. And yet, Lord, you died our death on our behalf and you rose from the grave to seal a sinner such as me. Two very different prayers, are they not? Look what I did. Look what you did. I suspect in eternity we're going to be just as surprised at who is missing as we are at who is there. I think our judgment's a little bit off sometimes. There's going to be some pretty impure-looking characters in the throne room who receive a seal and some pretty victorious-looking folk who miss out. Oddly, therefore, look at how the sealed are dressed. Verse 9. Clothed in white robes. These are symbols of purity, not sin. They look perfect. And with palm branches in their hands, these are symbols of victory, not failure. They look victorious. They appear to be completely pure, and they appear to have won. The sealed appear to have gotten absolutely everything right. So in this vision, they get one speaking part to clear up a few things, and I can tell you they're not speaking about themselves. They're crying out with a loud voice that is testifying for all to hear. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation is not earned, it is received. The robes and the palms were a gift. The purity and the victory has been imputed just like the seal. It's been given to them. They've been marked out by God and not by themselves. And so what do they do? They worship the one who gave it all. What else are you going to do? You can't receive salvation and keep quiet. It doesn't make any sense. You can't receive the, the best news the world has ever heard and just go, oh, cool, and get on. It doesn't make any sense. Their worship, of course, is, is completely contagious. And it starts to draw others in. Worship always does. Worship fosters intimacy. The more we worship, the more others are drawn in. As they're drawn in and we look and we see and we hear what everyone else is doing, I don't know, the room just gets smaller. <laughs> we want to spend some money to expand this room, but every single time we worship the Lord, it seems to get smaller. That's okay. Cool. Verse 12, even the angels join in. That's how cool it is. That's how good it is. The angels join in. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They list seven things about God. Seven 
is symbolic of perfection. They worship everything about God and they miss nothing out. Worship not only is contagious, but also completely consuming. No one's eyes are wandering in the throne room. I suspect one of the enemy's great tricks is to get us to become a bit consumed by our own image and to worship ourselves sometimes. Lord, Lord, look what I did. And something's happened in recent years, I believe, uh, that has led us to travel all the great sites of the world, the Great Wall of China and the Sphinx and, you know, whatever. I was going to say Stonehenge, but it's miserable. Don't go there. But uh, all the great... <laughs> people who've been there like, oh, man, it's just a broken clock. Yeah, don't go. Um, but... <laughs> But, you know, we go to all these great sites, the Grand Canyon, that's impressive, go there. And we, we think to ourselves, you know, what would make this view way more awesome would be if I stuck a picture of my own face right in front of it. What a weird world. Look at technology and especially our phones and the apps they run and the supercomputers behind the apps are designed to turn us in upon ourselves. That's the world we live in. Uh, Kat observed the other day that the use of our phones has developed a kind of liturgy of sorts. There's a pattern to how we wake and how we sleep. And then all day long, touch and swipe and click and post. No longer will our children be judged by the content of their character, but by the number of their likes and the length of their streaks. And before we get all smug and say, no, 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 not us, we're old, you see. We're not falling for it. Behold, this exact same mindset has infected the church. Lord, Lord, we did all these things for you. Tick. Lord, I gave loads. More than the person sitting next to me. Lord, I served all the time. Lord, I built this thing. Lord, I grew in my faith and I helped grow this church and I conquered my addiction and now I'm clean and I've made it and I've become holy. Are you going to do that in the throne room? Do you think? You're going to stand before the throne of God above and start your worship in that place with a list of what you did? No one in this scene in Revelation 7 is doing a selfie before the throne of God. <laughs> Worship is contagious. Worship is consuming. And as they're drawn in, they're consumed by what they see. Consumed by the throne and the Lamb. The person of God and the work of God. And it's awesome. Every now and then we get a taste of it in church. One of our members was out the other day and they overheard a conversation between two people like nearby. And they, these two people, they were talking about someone who was going to join their little group. And one of them said, oh, I don't know about them. Not sure about that person. I think that person goes to a cult. And the other one said, what cult? And they said, you know that one up on the hill? Christchurch. Just to put your minds at ease, we're not a cult. Uh, cults are defined by the rejection of the creeds, and we say one every week, and by their size, and we're in communion with 2.38 billion people. So I can tell you, we're not a cult. But uh, by the way, this is probably a very good time to let you know that some of the kids have been complaining about the coffee that we serve in the parlor on Sundays. They've been asking for cold drinks. So 
in the coming weeks, if you see that we've put out some Kool-Aid, uh, please don't read anything into that. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if that person came on the day we put out the Kool-Aid with the first thing, ah, I told you! <laughs> That'd be great. What a prank. I'm not offended by this word. I'm not offended by anything, ever. But I'm certainly not offended by this word cult. I'm absolutely thrilled they think we're a cult. Uh, They probably lack the language to explain in accurate terms what it is they've noticed about us. They just don't have that language. Uh, But they've noticed something. Uh, Maybe noticeably more intense about what we do. Or or more intimate, perhaps, about our love. More consuming, more contagious about our worship. They've not seen anything like this before. There's just a little glimpse here of what takes place around the throne. And the only word they have for that is, is cult. And so lukewarm and washed out has become the Western church, I think. And so evangelized by the culture of the day that the only word that person had for authentic worship when they saw it was cult. Our message is the complete opposite of the message of the world. Who can stand? No one. No one at all is good enough. Yet, an enormous number will stand. So for the second question, how? One of the elders addressed me saying, I'm in verse 13, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? If no one can stand, and yet plainly right in front of me many are standing, and no one is holy, and yet plainly they're all dressed in robes as if they are, and no one earns their way to the throne, and yet they're all waving palms of victory and holding them in their own hands, how? How's this happening? I said to him, sir, you know. (laughs) Like, why are you asking me? You're that weird heavenly being. You tell me, dude. I'm just a bloke. And he said to me, all right, then I will. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have been pressed and they have been squeezed and they have been abused and they have been bereaved, often for their faith. And then they've been judged by their peers, not by the judge, I can tell you. But... They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They got here through nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now they stand, washed clean by it. It's a very strange idea that you might wash something and make it white in blood, which is so obviously red. There were three doctors in church last night. I asked them just to confirm, blood is red. Medically, it's been proven. So this idea is is strange to immerse something in in blood and make it clean and white. But the idea of the image drawing upon all of the sacrificial imagery and language of Scripture is that the purifying and atoning sacrifice of the Lamb slain for them has effectively laundered them with its flow as they've been plunged deep into the grace of God. The sacrifice of the lamb has has blotted up their sin and soaked it all away and imputed upon them something new. The death penalty of their sin has been paid for. And the work of the lamb and the blood of the lamb into which they've been immersed has left them completely clean, fully imputed with his image. 
And all they brought to this equation was the crimson stain of their own sin. That's all they brought. Note the tense. They have washed. It was done. Note the tense. Made white. It was done once. Verse 15, therefore, that is to say as a result, they are before the throne of God. That's how they got there. And it's why they say, your praise will ever be on my lips for who you are and for what you've done for me. That's why they worship. And as they worship in this place of of blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might with angels and strange creatures all around and flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and a throne, a pretty scary place, something far more tender and intimate and caring and beautiful and loving occurs before the throne than you might ever imagine. You don't really picture a judgment seat or the seat of power and think tenderness normally. Yet we see it here. Healing comes. Restoration. Renewal. Recompense. For all the slowness as we saw it. For all the loss as we felt it. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence and wipe away every tear from their eyes. Have you ever comforted a child from a a nightmare, you know, a terror in the night? Or um, scooped up a child who's fallen over in the dirt, and they've got tears streaming down their face and kind of snot, and they've dragged it across the cheek and into the eye, and there's grazed and blood and there's dust in the thing and the red face and they're sweating and they're clammy and oozing stuff everywhere and just hugged them in your best shirt <laughs> got it all over you those were our credentials that was our humble estate that's how we were when we entered the throne room And he wipes away those tears. And he clothes us with his own robe. And he gives to us the symbol of his own victory. Completely transforms the way we appear. And that's just the start. It's not the start of a sermon, I'm nearly done, but it is the start of eternity. (laughs) It's just the beginning. No wonder they worship, there's food and drink. And shelter to be found at the throne. And verse 17 says, For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. A strange image of a lamb shepherding. The lamb who brought them safely into this place through his blood is the same lamb who draws them ever deeper still into more of what there is to find in that place. He will guide them further in to springs of living water. There's more life even more, as we continue in that place to drink forevermore, endlessly going back and endlessly drawing down more of the life that there is to be found. Who gets it? Those he calls to himself. How do they get it? By grace alone. What is it like? It's really good. It's more contagious and more consuming and more intimate and more infinite than we could ever hope. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for all your provision. You are so good to us. And, and we've brought mess and failure, Lord, uh, but you died and rose for us. I thank you, Lord, that you've purchased for us our place in that room. We are yet bold to say, come, Lord Jesus. And if there's one more person to be sealed, just one, God, would this be the day? In your name we pray. Amen.